Hello, and welcome back to Stark Conversations, friends. Today, we all get to be students of Dr. Anna Louise Keating, and this promises to be an incredibly interesting class. Hey, friends, and welcome to Stark Conversations. Here, we will have some bare bones, unavoidable, but necessary discussions. I'm your host, Heather Stark. Friends, for years, I kept my tongue glued to the roof of my mouth so that I could fit society's idea of a pretty, pleasing woman. However, I always felt broken. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I realized I'm not broken. No one is broken. It's the way the world was built and the oppressive expectations from society that makes us feel broken. At that moment, I realized how important having a voice in space was, how vital feminism, that's right, feminism is to our world. Feminism is the path to advocacy, healing, and equality. Each week, I'm going to bring you a conversation on the importance of feminism, an action-oriented way of life that empowers, raises voices, and welcomes all people. Please like and subscribe anywhere podcasts are played. I would love to be in conversation with you. Dr. Anna Louise Keating is going to talk to us all about the many theories that feed in to feminism. Dr. Keating is a wealth of intellect. She's one of those and both spirits. She lives in the in-between, those gray spaces of life, and her work is proof of this. I was drawn to her because of how she approaches feminism and its multiple layers. Because to understand and to live in feminism really means that we understand that there are viewpoints all around us, that everybody comes to feminism in their own experiences, with their own values and their own beliefs. Dr. Keating observes how these paradoxes of feminism work or don't work, but still, she's more interested in finding where they connect, where the like experience is. She explains feminism and womanism, its differences, its similarities. She gives insight into the intersectionality of feminism with women of color and queer theory. She describes how we experience the world from both where we live and from inside our bodies. Dr. Keating beckons the communion and the divine of feminism while respecting the many viewpoints of it. She helps us understand the very nuanced and layered needs of everybody. So when it comes to true equality, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Dr. Keating emphasizes that to understand another's spirit, we must understand their lived experiences, and these theories help us do that. This is a keystone value of feminism, and Dr. Keating's ability to hold the paradoxes of humanity make her a keystone feminist. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Keating. Her work focuses on transformation studies, U.S. women of color theories, Gloria Andaluz, and pediology. She's the author of numerous publications, including Teaching Transformation, Transcultural Classroom Dialogues, Women Reading, Women Writing, Self-Invention in Paula Gunn Allen, Gloria Andaluz, and Audrey Lord, and The Gloria Andaluz Reader. She also co-edited This Bridge We Call Home, Radical Visions for Transformation, alongside Gloria Andaluz. 
Dr. Keating is currently working on two projects, including a book on Andal Duez's theories. If you get the chance, listeners, to look up Gloria Andal Duez, please do it. You will not be disappointed. So Dr. Keating's book on Gloria Andalduva's theories is under contract with Duke University Press, and she's working on a book on womanist spiritual activism, which is under contract with the University of Illinois Press. Her book on womanist spiritual activism will be part of her book series, Transformations, Womanist, Feminist, and Indigenous Studies. Friends, I give you Dr. Anna Louise Keating and Feminist Theory. Dr. Keating, thank you so much for being here. The first question that I have of all of my guests is, how do you define feminism? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's important to emphasize that feminism has many definitions, Mm -hmm. right? And um, people define it in a lot of different ways. There's, uh, There's an assumption that feminism is only for women or only about women or only about gender as well as all of the stereotypes uh, that have been around for a really long time. There's the assumption that feminism is just for white women. Um, So there's many assumptions about it. And I suppose people can enter the field and think about it in many different ways. Um, I guess I define feminism as um, social justice practice and theory and movement that's designed to bring about a more equitable living conditions and societies and feminism does, in, in, in my research, a lot of times feminism does seem to really emphasize gender, right? Like gender is always involved. I mean, we'll talk about womanism, but the, despite the name, womanism doesn't always quite emphasize gender the same way. But that said, especially now, uh, although we saw this in the 20th century as well, feminism is what's often called intersectional, right? So it's looking at systems of oppression, Um, systems of social injustice and really thinking that by looking at the systems, it's kind of like having a big knot. If we can really, you know, you get a a necklace and it gets a big knot in it. If you just look really carefully at the knot and try to tease it apart, you're kind of addressing the whole thing at once. And so feminism can also allow for that examination of multiple forms of injustice. Thank you. I love what you've said, um, how it doesn't belong to just one group. It's actually a note that I wrote here, which is one of the, you know, I explained a lot of reasons why I was drawn to talking to you, but that was another one because you, you teach a lot about feminism and womanists and theories, which is what I want to talk to you about. But the way that you, the questions that you pose to your students and your course descriptions just examines it at every angle. And really, like you said, with that knot helps people to understand, oh, wait, it's not just women. This is, you know, if you believe there's advocacy needed for one group, then you have to believe there's advocacy needed for all groups. Right. Um, and I just, I love that. So tell me what led you to do what you do, that what led you to your path that you're on. Yeah. um, Well, my background is very, it's a very uh, conservative Protestant religion and I was raised in it and I wanted to be like a minister. And in my, uh, my family's religion, it was like, no, women can't be ministers. You know, it was very conservative. Women had their heads covered and all of that. And then I went to conservative college and I was like, I think I'd like to be a philosopher. And I was told there's no women philosophers. And honestly, in the curriculum I was exposed to, there weren't. Um, But I just, so I had many questions about that version of Christianity and a kind of very strong Calvinism. And I just was very interested in trying to make sense of the world and find meaning. So um, 
this is a long answer, but this is really how it goes. So I studied the Puritans and I studied Ralph Waldo Emerson in graduate school, um, American literature, just to try to understand our country, really. Um, and like that opened me up to a more expansive way of understanding the world. And then somehow I happened to across a copy of this bridge called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. And that was my introduction to feminism. And if, for people who don't know that book, the description would be, it was one of the first well-known edited collections by women of color who defined themselves as feminists. And in part, they were talking back to the mainstream feminist movement, which was very white and very middle-class and fairly heterosexual and saying, hey, we're here too. And we're, we're not white. We're not all heterosexual. We're definitely not all middle class. And we're feminists. And here's what feminism does for us. So I was introduced to it in this very intersectional way. Um, and in that book, there's a section that really takes spirituality and looks at it as part of our politics for how we how we can really make radical change. And so that was that was the hook for me because that's what I was looking for all through all my graduate education was a way to think about that kind of like liberation at individual and collective levels that also included spirit and soul. Mm -hmm. um, so so then I started reading more feminist theory, and I I always had a, a kind of even though I love this bridge and um. A lot of my work is on Gloria Anzaldúa, who's very much a feminist. I noticed over and over and over in the literature, it kept emphasizing gender. And it and I, I'm way too inclusive for that. I want to see multiple things emphasized at the same time. And a lot of even feminist theorists in the 20th century would talk about feminists, and then they talk about male feminists. So embedded in the word was almost an assumption. It's women who are feminists, which I found to be ridiculous because you can't you know, that's not going to work if you only have some people trying for a certain kind of social justice. It can be too oppositional, for example. Um, so then when I read Alice Walker and I encountered womanism, I was like, oh, yeah, this is me. This is me. Um, but they totally overlap. You know, they, they totally overlap in many ways. But womanism, it seemed to uh, not naturally, but it seemed to more easily incorporate uh, systems of oppression. So thinking about class, thinking about region, thinking about religion, all of these variables. And also it had room for spirit in a way that uh, some feminists did, but because so many feminists were reacting against the conservative patriarchal nature of some organized religions, they're, they're, and the academy has what I call spirit phobia, like a fear of spirit. Like they don't want to talk about it because it'll either be seen as oppressive or regressive or that's the church and you know we're secular so womanism like really helped me put my foot it gave me like another way to put my foot in the door and another way to theorize I love that thank you and that that's a perfect lead into what womanist versus feminist and so this womanist has this spiritual aspect in it am I understanding that correctly yeah. So womanism, like feminism, it's very multiplicitous and not everyone, not all versions would even agree with each other, just like feminism. Right. So it's really diverse. Uh, womanism originated from Southern black U.S. women. Like we could say it's Alice Walker thinking about uh, thinking about her mom or her grandma saying you're acting womanish. And, and kind of like using that to talk about womanist. So it originated there, but it's very expansive and generous. Some versions, right? Like the version like Lely Mapayan and I uh, practice is very inclusive. So you honor the roots, but you don't say it's only for black women or it's only for this group or only for that group. There are some versions of womanism and womanist thought that would disagree with that. Uh, there's a whole branch of womanism that is, I don't want to say, that is in religious studies. 
uh, so there's this whole very theological part. And, and some of these womanist theologians will go back and reread the Old Testament from this uh, Black women's perspective on uh, often. So again, it's like super diverse. Womanism more often seems to automatically give space for spirit, mm-hmm. right? Not that every womanist necessarily does. And womanism is more uh, like, gen- like feminist theory does seem to often start with gender, right? Womanism might or might not. It depends on the issue you're looking at. Some issues, yeah, you'd start with gender, but you know, other issues might have a different starting point depending on what seems most urgent. Okay. So can you be both? People can be both. Okay. Or neither. And people can definitely use both womanist perspectives and feminist perspectives and they can overlap. And then I have a, I have a really good friend, Gary Lemons. He uh, published a book in my book series and he talks about himself both as a womanist and as a feminist. And so it's, you know, you, people go back and forth with the terms, uh, but then other people will be very much like not, right? There'll be some people who are like, especially some black feminists have to really carefully say why they use that terminology versus womanism, mm. right? But then others will just like overlap it just depending on who's the audience, what's going to land, you know, what is going to be the best vehicle to explain a worldview. Mm. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much yeah. for explaining that. Okay, so you mentioned Gloria Anzaldúa. Am I saying that correctly? It's a hard. It's a hard one. Anzaldúa. Yeah. Anzaldúa. Gloria Anzaldúa. Tell me about her and and why? Because I, I I see her name pop up in a lot of things that I've read about you. So tell me about yeah. that. Yeah, she's my. She has. She was a good friend when she was alive, and she's my main research interest. Um, Anzaldua was born in the, in South Texas, right near the border, um, in, uh, between Texas and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, um, she's best known both for co-editing this bridge called my back and for a really important book that she published in 1987 called Borderlands La Frontera, the new Mestiza. And it's, it's looking at that borderland, both the borderland between Texas and the U S but also all of those uncomfortable liminal spaces. We are borders. Borders aren't here. They're not there. They're kind of both. They're chaotic. They're painful. Uh, they're sources of conflict. So she really exposed and thought about the borderlands in these different ways uh, while retelling, uh, kind of recovering earlier mythic histories and uh, human histories of that literal Texas-Mexico uh, border. Um, and she also did important things like she code switch. So she'd go from Spanish to English to Nahuatl. Uh, to other indigenous languages in her text. And in 87, that wasn't done so much in literature. So she's, you know, so she's known for those things. But also, um, and I think the reason that I was so drawn to her is she has a theory of spiritual activism. Okay. So it's, it's act, so it's activism, like that's the noun. The thing is, we're doing activism, we're trying to bring about social change, and spiritual as the adjective modifies it. So it's a kind of activism that includes spirit. It's like a politics of spirit. So like when I interviewed her and she used that term, it was like, that was the light bulb in my head. I was like, this is what I've been looking for because I can talk, you know, feminists were not very, you know, feminist journals were not very receptive to what I was trying to write about because of the spiritual component. But this is a way to, to underscore that it's not just, not just sitting around doing nothing. It's activism. It's using all of this to make change in the external world, as well as in people's inner worlds. So, yeah. And so Anzaldua wrote other books and she, you know, she was like a philosopher, a theorist, very early. um, She was using, she was doing queer theory and using 
the language before it made its way into the academy. So there's many like really important contributions that she's made. Can you, uh, I don't want to simplify anything, but can you talk about her queer theory and how it fits in with feminists or womanists? I just feel like it's very important that we talk about that in this conversation. Yeah. So Anzal Dua, uh, Anzal Dua's sexuality was very, um, I don't have to say complex. Like she often identified as lesbian, but it was actually more complex than that. So she, and lesbian, she saw as kind of a Anglo term because that's who was using it the most in like the eighties. So queer, uh, queer symbolized like being, Unas de las otras, one of the others, uh, different, right? So queer kind of signals a kind of difference. Um, and the way that Anzal Dua did queer theory was um, very relational. So it's it's that idea of using the concept of difference to organize under, right? Like you might be different because of your class. You might be different. I might be different because of my sexuality. Uh, he might be different because of his race or whatever, multiple differences. And it's not that we're all joining together because of that one thing, race or gender or sexuality, but rather we're joining together because we understand what it's like to be excluded. And so we want to create a world where it's more inclusive, right? Yes. So it's a relational kind of organizing. And the way that she did queer theory was that focusing on a kind of relationality and using that lens to ask different questions. So I think like when you look at my syllabi and you're like, oh, these you're, you're coming at it from these different angles. I, I would call that a form of queering the conventional approach, right? Or the conventional question. And then, um, and I have practiced this word over and over, napentala? Oh, napatla. They're hard. Oh, they're hard. And that one's really hard because it's so close to the word plant. Mm-hmm. So people like move the L to the wrong place. Okay. Um, will you say it again um, yes. so I can get it correctly? Yeah. Nap- napatla. Napatla. Now you've described yourself as that. Oh, Nepantlera. Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Will you tell me, tell me about that? Because I find that this in the middle. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yes. So Anzal Dua, so Nepantla is a Nahuatl. So Nahuatl is an indigenous, like Mesoamerican language. Um, Nepantla is the Nahuatl word for in between. Liminality in between, betwixt and between, or if we think of a threshold, right? So if you're on the threshold, here's the inside, here's the outside. You're neither inside nor outside, but you're both. You're both and you're neither. So it's 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 that shifting kind of space in ritual. Uh, in ritual, the lemon, the lemon, that threshold is the point of transformation. You go into a ritual, and who knows how you might end up. Um, and some, like when Victor Turner, when he talks about them anthropologically. So Anzal Dua was, had her concept of borderlands, and she meant it both as the literal U.S.-Mexico borderland, but she also meant it as this metaphoric space. And she found out that people were, especially, you know, everybody's, you know, some people were like, it only means the geographic borderland. You can, you know, it only means that. So she, like, instead of like fighting that battle, she's like, I'll just use a different term. I'll use a different theory. So she started, like, after Borderlands was published in the 90s, she started talking about Nepantla. And as she started talking and thinking about that liminality, she developed more theories around it. And, and, and a Nepantlata, this is a word she made up, she coined the word, it describes the person who has experienced being in between. And instead of being like, okay, I just, 
I just was in between and now I'm that. Like I had a point of transformation. I'm transformed. Now I'm this other thing. The Nepantleta is somebody who chooses to remain in that in-between space. And by remaining in that in-between space, you can witness to all sorts of groups, right? Mm -hmm. So when there's oppositions between groups, instead of picking a side, you try, and I say try because it's not always possible, but you really try to listen to every side and you try to look for a commonality or you look, you look for a place to um, make connections. So that's a Nepantleta, someone who chooses to move among worlds. Okay. So does this then lead into your book, Transformation Now, when you're talking about looking at something from all sides? Yes. Okay. Transformation Now, Post-Oppositional Politics of Change. And just... Yes. Tell me about that and tell me how you are kind of relating, how it relates to feminism. So I think really often, uh, if you can look at the history of Western thought and you can start with Descartes, we could probably go back farther. Uh, Anyways, uh, very often we think in either or categories, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mind, body, uh, self, other, us, them. So we, we, te- we have this long, deep, embedded training to think in terms of an either-or kind of thing. And often in politics or often in discussions, uh, we're asked to pick a side. Mm-hmm. And if you pick this, you're not that. It's one or the other. And social movements really do it too, right? Uh, they really, you know, it's us against them. Uh, there's this great oppositional energy and there's many things to oppose and many things, you know, many, so many uh, social injustices to battle against. But what I noticed over and over is when we do it with an anti, not that we are on, uh, we're call, we're still, we're still calling in that energy. We're not really right. The, we're, we're still defining ourselves by what we're, what we're against. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, so if we really want to make radical change, in my opinion, that will never work. It might make temporary change, but it won't make the kind of change that I would like to see. Number one. And number two, it can have a poisonous effect on the people being oppositional. And I've seen over and over again, uh, groups splinter from within because, you know, they're opposed to one thing, but they have all that energy of being against, and then they take it against each other because we all are going to have differences. And if you relate to your difference by opposing, if you relate to a difference by opposing, you're just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller groups. It's just, it, I see it as not sustainable and I'm not interested. Yeah. Right. Uh, although like, actually I'm very much a, you know, I'm, I, you know, if I hadn't been a professor, I probably would have been a lawyer because I actually like arguing and debating. <laughs> Um, so I have my own tendency to be oppositional, but I know personally it just doesn't work. So post-oppositionality is an invitation to take all the lessons that we've learned from all of our oppositional thought and all our politics and try to come up with different ways. And it's really a question because I don't have the answers for what that looks like. I do think it's very relational. I do think it's looking at commonalities. I do think it's defining uh, difference in that relational way. Um so it's so I guess post-oppositional is a lens that feminists could use or uh, any any political actors or just anybody could use. I mean, my gosh, I think like the whole United States, we're so binary right yeah. now. We all could use some of it, right? If you are, you know, feminism and you believe in advocacy and all of these things that it belongs to everybody, then you cannot use, you know, 
conflict. You can't define yourself by what you are not because you have your you're embracing and you're open to advocating for all. I made this connection while you were talking and defining, sometimes people define themselves as what they are against, you know, they're anti. When I'm working with girls and parents and we talk about them going into that that pre-puberty life development stage and they're kind of aware of their social surroundings, a lot of times girls define themselves as what they are not, not pretty, not tall, not thin. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the same thing. So if it doesn't work when you're growing and figuring out who you are, then of course it's not going to work when you're an adult, you know, trying to embrace the world. So, oh my gosh, that was a big connection for me. Thank you. I want to talk about spirituality and women being in religion and bouncing from one religion to another, trying to figure out, trying to unstick my tongue from the roof of my mouth and advocating for myself, you know, and eventually having to leave kind of this organized religion behind and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm not broken. I'm not broken. That's just, you know, what they, they teach you so that you'll go to church and realizing that just the spirit of it all and the universe of it all. And I I just remember I was hiking and just having this thought and just feeling like I could just like stretch in this space that just I'd never, whereas I felt confined in a space beforehand. Um, So spirituality and women, I think that's a huge thing. And and I, I don't have all of the words just because right now I'm probably defining it as anti-religion. I'm anti-religion. So I'm, you know, but I want to hear spirituality and women and, and how it connects for you. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm. between spirituality and religion, right? Like a person can be religious and spiritual or a person can be religious and not spiritual. Uh, spirituality is... I would say larger than religions, right? Religion usually has like some kind of set of doctrines. It usually has some kind of authoritative leaders uh, and certain kinds of structure. So it's like external authorities, right? Where spirituality, as I understand it, really seems to begin from the indivi- from within. Although then we make these larger connections like what you're talking about, right? Um for me personally, it was reading, uh, it started with Merlin Stone has a book called When God Was a Woman. It's really great. She goes through the Old Testament. She goes through the geography of the Old Testament, the archaeology of the Old Testament, and she looks at how each each nation that uh, Yahweh told the Hebrews to conquer was actually a goddess-worshipping country. It was goddess-worshipping, right? So, you know, in, in the Genesis creation story, we have the serpent and we have the tree. It just so happens that serpents and trees are huge, important, divine, feminine images in these earlier religions, right? So understanding that there was actually a much more uh, either goddess or just more a plural kind of gendered divine prior to the monotheism of Christianity and other monotheistic religions was like really liberating for me, liberating for me personally, because um, I could understand that the divine was not just masculine. And in the Protestant, the Protestant version of Christianity that I grew up in, you have God, you have Jesus and you have the Holy spirit and all three of them were gendered male. And so that really ends up. And then you have the whole creation story in Genesis 
where it's Eve's fault, right? Eve's the one who was seduced by the serpent. Um, so understanding there's many creation stories that don't have that kind of gendered blame. And there's creation stories like indigenous creation stories don't start with perfection and then the earth falls, which also, you know, that the, if you have this idea of a fallen world, then you treat nature differently than if you see it as kind of this rising change or difference, which indigenous creation stories do. It's a collective effort. Uh, so all of that was really important to me also. And so understanding every single culture had earlier versions of the divine that included the feminine was super important. And then, uh, and then actually I was reading a J.D. Salinger story in nine stories. And one of the characters talks about, he's eating a bowl of cereal and he's like, that, you know, pouring milk on a cereal and says, you're pouring God onto God. And I was like, that's it. Everything is divine. Everything is spirit. Right. And so that, and then, and then I under now, like just through doing like more research, I understand that indigenous worldviews. And also if you go back, if you go back to before, like the enlightenment, Western worldviews, the world is in soul. Everything has spirit. Right. And that, that I, I, that is the metaphysical perspective that makes the most sense to me. Everything is in soul. Everything has spirit. Everything is alive. We just, we just have been trained to treat some things as not alive. And then we rank them all in that hierarchy, yeah. right? With humans yeah. at the top. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And so. I love the, the importance of it all. <laughs> the importance of it all, including yes. women, but the importance of it all. And it's all interconnected. So yeah course it's important because it's all a yes. part of us and we're all a part of it. I also love the idea. Um, a big, a big flip for me was this idea that um, going from our spirit is housed in our body to where our body is housed within spirit. That was very freeing to me and, and struggling to be more than just a body, you know, more than just a woman that is, you know, caught up in beauty culture. That was a very freeing thing. And being able to grasp that I am spirit before anything else was just a. <sighs> yeah. Because I mean, like that's another, another negative effect of many conservative religions is so you not only have that binary and that hierarchy where men are elevated, right. But also women are the ones who've been associated with the body because of menstruation, because of childbirth, um, and it's not just religion that does that. And so the body is less, right? So, yeah, so I agree. Like these ways of redefining um, embodiment, because of, especially because of how women have been so associated with the body are crucial. So how do we love ourselves if we don't love our bodies, right? Um, and what does it mean to, and that's why, so, um, so I also teach yoga. And I, what I teach is yin yoga because yin yoga is this, very slow practice that gives us this time to be mindful about our own bodies where I think we can really access spirit through that inner listening. Like we access this kind of intuition that uh, goes beyond the social scripts that has been like, it's really important. Yes, I think. very much so. So I want to talk about, which this sounds like body, but not exactly, but theory of flesh. Yes. Tell me about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So theory, theory in the flesh is a phrase that Anzal Dua and Sheree Moraga, her co-editor for this bridge, call my back. Um, it's a phrase that they use to talk about a way of making theory where the theory emerges from one's lived experience. Mm -hmm. 
And the pieces in that section, because I have a section of this bridge called my back that's called Theory in the Flesh, it's, it's like growing up and you're just a kid and you might be whatever color or whatever and you're just a kid and then boom, you see racism or boom, you see sexism. You see this, or you see this contradictory kind of experience, then you, as you make sense of it, you're creating theory. So for these women of color, sometimes it was like being feminist, but then also seeing racism, then figuring out how do those go together or what is that contradiction and how do we make sense from it or how do we transform it? So that's theory in the flesh. It starts with, it starts with one's very specific personal located embodied experience. Yes. And it's something we have to be aware of as we are looking at your privilege of people that do not have the same privileges of, of advocacy and embracing everybody, which leads into um, intersectional feminism, which you've talked about. But for those that have not heard that terminology, can you just explain, explain that and explain why it is important, especially when we are embracing the idea that um, of feminism and, and embracing and advocacy inequality. Yeah. So the word intersectional used in conjunction with feminism uh, is attributed to Kimberly Crenshaw. And she had an article where she was writing about specific forms of discrimination that black women experience. They're experienced, they're, they experience discrimination as black women, not as black people and as women, but as both together. So it's this kind of intersection of things. She started by looking at one form of racism and one form of sexism as they intersected within specific lives and legal situations. It's now been expanded to think about multiple systems of oppression and how they impact people's, people's lives and people. I personally would argue that we see intersectional feminism in this bridge called My Back. That was published in 81 and Crenshaw's article was 1990. Um, so I, I think like, I, so that the intersectional feminism preceded the term itself, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the thing is, like, when we think of an intersection, we tend to think of two things, because an intersection typically is two, right? Uh, but intersectionality is much more, I think of it more like interconnectivity. It's much more, it's more, it could, it, it's much more like a, a spider web or something like that, because there's so many strands to it. I think that was only part of your question. What else? Just the, the understanding what, what it was, especially when we're looking at it in terms of, of groups that need advocacy and, and more equality. Yeah, there's always going to be multiple variables that will be affecting us. So there's multiple systems always affecting us. And if we don't acknowledge some of those systems, they're still affecting us, right? Whether we acknowledge them or not. So that's why we can't just look at gender really ever, but we always should be thinking about the other things. And even people in the groups that seem most powerful, um, yes, sometimes they benefit from that, but there's also kind of like limitations they experience from it too. So, so, so getting this broader perspective in the long run helps everybody. Yeah. Right. So then, yes. So will you then um, tell me about standpoint epistemology? Yeah. And explain that. I, I, that one I read and I read and I read. <laughs> but if you can help me with this one and yeah. where it fits in. Yeah. Okay. So standpoint. So the idea, we could say an early version of standpoint epistemology would be the, com the um, Kombahi Collective. 
Um, they have a black feminist statement, which also can be found in this bridge called my back, but they published it earlier. And they talk about um, their politics emerging from their identities as black women. So standpoint is the idea that, and, and it's not just a gender theory. I mean, there's also versions of standpoint that focus on race or whatever, on different things, many different things. Um, standpoint is the idea that wherever we're at, that location influences what we see, how we see, how we know, and how we define things. We all have a standpoint. But what we were, what we were taught, like if you again look at Western philosophy, there's this ridiculous idea that the true epistemology, the true standpoint is like the God's eye view. Well, I'm sorry, but like none of us have a God's eye view that, that can just see everything, right? But, right? but too often, if you look historically at texts, the assumption was that that, that that God's eye view was conflated with a white male middle or upper class perspective, right? So standpoint is starting to think about how our embodiedness influences our way of knowing and so on and so on. So, so standpoint epistemology is that idea of the epistemology, the theory of knowledge, the way of thinking to have emerged from somebody's physical embodied location. So then does the theory of flesh and standpoint, do they feed into one another? Do they contradict one another? They feed into one another. Okay. They're, I mean, stand, I, mean I, I think you could almost say theory in the flesh is almost a method. It's a way, it's a way of creating theory and people are doing it from their standpoint. Yes. Okay. Got it. Okay. So, so I would say that the difference, for example, uh, if we think of Anzal Duan, she has this whole other theory of conocimiento, or honestly, if you think of like uh, what I'm trying to do with post-oppositionality, like what does standpoint mean if you're thinking about an ensouled world? Like what does standpoint mean if you're thinking about the role that spirit plays in identity? I think it's going to change it. I mean, I'm still like kind of thinking about those questions. So not to like confuse you further, but, uh, but yeah. I do appreciate because what you're talking about is, is examples of how very layered it is and how very open we need to be in thinking of this. It, get rid of this black and white thought. There's just so much gray and it's layered mm -hmm. and it's dense and which to me kind of makes it holy. And like you said, divine, just all of the yeah. very, um, the complexity and it's beautiful complexity. It's not complexity to turn us off. It's complexity to draw us in and to connect yeah. and to talk, yeah. and to ask and figure it out. I mean, that to me, that's the joy and the abundance of it all. And it gets yeah. lost. It get, that yeah. gets lost in it. I am very interested in the work that you are doing about indigenous people and uh, feminism, womanism. Will you tell me about that? So like, for example, when I teach a course in epistemology, I start with indigenous ways of knowing. Or back when I used to teach literature, when we, work, we, like, we wouldn't just start with like the Puritans. We would read a Genesis creation story and we would read indigenous creation stories because... Um, it's, it's good to think about them relationally. Um, and I do think indigenous worldviews and indigenous at the most basic, of course, means like in relation to the land, right? So like we can go back far enough and everybody at some point was indigenous, which is not to ignore the sovereignty of nations, indigenous nations. Um, so I, I was shocked when I started like bringing in indigenous stories or whatever to realize how often my students were completely unaware of all of it. 
So I saw it as partially wanting to just help them be aware of like, we have these beautiful histories and literatures and things like that. But also, I mean, Paula Gunn Allen has an essay about this. It's called The Red, like the Red Roots of White Feminism. And she looks at, if you look at like up in the Seneca Falls region, which is like upper New York, maybe. Mm-hmm. And you look at, you go back historically to the women who are so often credited with being the first feminists. And you look at how they were living as neighbors with, um, I think the Haudenosaunee, the Oneida tribes, they were in, they were like in conversation with indigenous tribes that were much more uh, gynocentric. So it's very possible. And, and, you know, Alan talks about this, others have talked about it. It's very possible that this concept of women's rights was incredibly influenced by seeing indigenous people who treated women much better. Like, mm-hmm. hey, there's another way to be. Hey, these women are part of the governing body. Why aren't we? So for those reasons, I think it's super important to bring that in. Plus, just, just indigenous uh, theories and perspectives are so much more, there's a deeper history of relationality, which then is useful for us to think about. Because it wasn't in front of me and you don't know what you don't know, but the lack of of work on things like this with indigenous people is is astounding to me because we all want to know our foundation. We want to know our foundation, you know. Well, I mean, that's it right there, you know, mm-hmm. just indigenous people and and um their ways of life. And I just I I really I I love that. Um and thank you. Just for bringing that to light for me. Uh, and so will you tell me, it was the red roots of white feminism. Was that the article that you said? Okay. Yeah, it's in, um, you can probably find it online and it's in her book called The Sacred Who. Okay. I have lots of notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so will you share some other things that you are working on right now? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I'm teaching a lot of yoga. <laughs> <laughs> I teach, I teach in yoga several times a week. Um, and I'm really thinking about uh, that mindfulness of the body and the role it can play in addressing the increase in anxiety, mm. right? And that goes with my undergraduate. I teach an undergraduate course, Women of Spiritual Activism. And so we do a lot of um, wellness practices, which are uh, breathing. Like, you know, we take breath for granted so much, um, but of course it's crucial and especially even more crucial now when we need to be thinking about how to keep our lungs healthy and just you know, so, so calling it, and also for like college students, all of, you know, there's so many things to worry about and attention can be all over the place. So kind of giving, giving them this forced opportunity um, to spend 10 minutes a day, three times a week, just mindfully breathing or taking a contemplative walk. So, you know, I'm really thinking about that and thinking about bringing that into my writing. And then the book I'm working on is, um, on women of spiritual activism. So thinking like, how can we, how can we use, you know, kind of putting the theory together, but then like, what are some practical things that can be done? Um, you know? Yeah. yeah. What are some tools? What are the technologies? Yeah. Okay. I'm very intrigued about that. I read a little bit about that. I'm like, oh yes, yes, please. (laughs) Uh, so tell me what brings you then joy and abundance in your work. I mean, what draws you back day after day? I love learning. I love sharing what I've learned. I love seeing all the connections, whether it's between ideas or between topics or between theories or things like that. So, so, I, so I'm also, uh, in my spare time, I'm learning astrology. 
mm. like ancient astrology, because it's, it's, it's all, it's the harmony of the spheres, right? It also is another way to think about relationality. So uh, that gives me joy is just thinking about all that interconnectedness, making those connections, seeing people make the connections, making connections with people, like all of that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So one last question what knowledge or truth do you want to depart to your students or those that that are drawn to your work? What is something that you hope that they walk away with? A recognition that everything is intimately and radically interconnected mm. and we rise or sink together. Yeah. Uh, we're not we're not little islands despite the fact that our bodies seem so separate from each other. We're all radically interconnected. I yeah. love that. Dr. Keating, thank you for taking the time and talking to me. This was very enlightening. Thank you for imparting your knowledge and being very easy to talk to. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you you made it easy to you made it easy. Well, thank you. you. Asked great questions and had a really good flow of questions. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And you're doing the same work, so keep it up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. Take care. All right. Bye bye.